0: W-P-H-A-T. You're listening to the number one health and wellness podcast. The place where health and consciousness connect. Perfectly, Perfectly healthy, healthy, healthy and toned tone radio. radio. With your host, Darren McDuffie. And now, prepare to get fat. Yo, what's up, peeps? Darren McDuffie here, alias Fat Man, helping you become perfectly healthy and toned and conscious, of course. And this episode is being brought to you by perfectlyhealthyandtoned.com. Make sure you go and check it out. Today's episode is 168 with Julia Ross entitled The Craving Cure. Before I talk more about Julia Ross's book, The Craving Cure, I wanted to remind you of a previous episode, as I always do, episode 167 with Heather K. Jacobson in entitled Going Gluten-Free. If you are someone else out there that has not found out that gluten can cause specific health problems, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to this episode. I know for me, my own personal experience with gluten was that when I eliminated it from my diet, my arthritic knees were suddenly better, and also it helped me stabilize my weight. So again, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. I'm not saying it's going to be the miracle cure-all for all, but I've seen some positive results from many people when they extract gluten from their diets. Now, let's get into episode 168, Craving Cure with Julia Roth. Julia's been on the show before, specifically on the mood cure. If you remember that show where we talk about nutritional therapy for things like depression and anxiety, and that show got a really positive response. And she has a new book now called The Craving Cure. And I don't know about you, but I know me, I've had my bouts with cravings. I've had all kinds of cravings throughout my life when I've tried to reduce my calories and shed body weight just so I can look aesthetically pleasing. So we get into why we have these cravings and what we can actually do about them on this show. And there's a lot of good information on on this show. And I would tell you that if you have not gotten a chance to go out and get one of Julia's books, she has th- three I believe. One is called the diet cure, one is called the mule cure, and this last one is called the craving cure. And I can say that they work because I know that I've been trying these especially for cravings. I get cravings in the afternoons when I'm at work and I tend to go to the vending machine and grab some peanuts or something else. And I know that since I've been doing this nutritional therapy, I have not had those cravings. So I can tell you as a testament that this nutritional therapy does work. So now, enough of my blib blab Let's get on with the show, and let's get into Julia Ross's bio. Julia Ross is a world leader in the use of nutritional therapy for the treatment of mood problems, eating disorders, and addictions. After 10 years as a psychotherapist working with individual adults and adolescents, families, and groups in a variety of in-psychiatric and outpatient settings, Ross began to direct programs. Some of her early achievements included the founding of the San Francisco Bay Area's first programs for food addicts and for drug-addicted adolescents and their families. Coming up on episode 168 the craving cure with julia ross here's what you're going to learn what happened in the 70s that changed our diets forever a lot of things went on in the 70s including me being born but we talk about eating habits and what specifically changed with our eating in the 1970s how is protein linked to the development of the human brain julia ross is a proponent for animal protein And we'll be talking about that specifically in episode 168. Why is Alzheimer's a disease of glycation? If you don't know what the term glycation is, pay attention because Julia gives an excellent definition of glycation and why it's important to know this when it comes to Alzheimer's and also diabetes. What is neuromarketing? Man, this is a term I had never heard of. And I know there are a lot of you out there who are listening to the podcast who may have not heard of the term neuromarketing as well. But Julia does give a great definition of neural marketing and why you need to be informed why do we have cravings what are the types of cravers i experienced my experience of craving because yes i do have cravings and i even tell about my craving types on this episode now let's get into episode 168 enjoy julia ross welcome back to perfectly healthy and toned radio
1: well i'm glad to be with you again
0: I'm glad you are back. I've got your new book, The Craving Cure. I have lots of questions for you. But before As we, usual. As usual, yeah. <laughs> but before we get into getting into those questions, I wanted to just give I wanted you to give us a brief synopsis of your health journey.
1: Well, I have been pretty healthy. I come from a physically healthy family, mentally healthy too. Not always likable, but <laughs> <laughs> So I would say the most important thing that, that has happened to me in relation to what we need to talk about today is that in the 1970s, I went to work in the addiction treatment field, which was just beginning then, because addiction was starting to uh, overgrow, and we were getting problems and numbers that we'd never had to deal with before. And so we had the pleasure of, and I had the pleasure of inventing Marvelous techniques for treating addiction. However, by 1980, the problem had expanded so rapidly that we were in the middle of a crack epidemic and our formerly 50% successful methods were now garnering 0% success. We had 24 hour relapse 100% of the time. And so I went into a depression, which is something that I wasn't used to, but I knew what it was all about. It was that I had trained myself and devoted myself to a field and had just learned that everything I had learned and everything I had contributed was useless in the face of the problem. And fortunately for me, a few years later, we got the answer to the problem. You know, what what's going on here that the best counseling, the best Spiritual approaches, uh, peer support, why doesn't any of it work? And the answer came from brain science. And what I learned from these scientists who specialized in the addictive brain is that cravings for substances, whether they're food substances or clearly drug substances, alcohol, tobacco, so forth, all operate and take control of us through five specific sites in the brain that was so enlightening it helped explain why our psychosocial spiritual approach wasn't working but fortunately just a few years later one of those scientists gave us a solution that we could actually implement in our programs in which I've been working with ever since he told us about five nutrients that fed those five appetite regulating functions in the brain uh, so that they would stop the the addictive craving, so that, that all of that sensation, the negative moods that draw you to certain substances, would go away. And so with the actual visceral craving and need for that particular kind of pleasure. And so ever since then, my depression has been lifted. <laughs> uh, ever since I found a solution, something that I could really work on and see quick results from, And so even though it was a pioneering effort and I didn't always get the appreciation that I would have liked the public to give to this so badly needed technology, um, it didn't matter because sitting right across the desk from me was somebody who was suddenly smiling when all they could think about before to to even get through the day was chocolate or pasta or whatever that they knew, you know, as pre-diabetics were killing them.
0: I wanted to um, get into talking a little bit about diabetics, but before before we get into that, you have had this is your third book. You've had the mood cure, the diet cure, and now this is the craving cure. And to me, this book gets a little bit more in depth as to the history of what's really causing this whole mood swing and this depression and all this other stuff. But you started out with the 70s of these dietary changes coming around the 70s, and I'm a child of the 70s. I I was born in the seventies and I remember as I was reading the book, I remember that my grandmother would only take us to McDonald's on special occasions. And now you Mm -hmm. have people who are eating McDonald's every single day, McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, you know, all these fast food, food things and microwave meals. But take us back to the seventies and kind of go through what happened to change us to where we are today in 2019.
1: Well, if we go back. Just for a minute, uh, the, the two million years prior to the 1970s, a lot of people don't know this, but anybody your age or younger would not know that for all that time, we had virtually no degenerative disease. In other words, we had infections, we had you know viruses and plagues and so forth, and, and women died in childbirth. But those were really the only reason for premature death you know, other than, than famine. So weight was not a problem. Health was not a problem. Neither problem really existed. And I've got photos of human society up, right up through the 60s showing lovely confidence in our bodies and no reason not to have it and our health. Uh, but in the 1970s, we were convinced that the increase, the, 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 the degenerative disease that started all of this, in the 70s we became convinced that heart disease, which had been growing since the 1930s, was really derived from our diet in that the dietary problem causing heart disease had to do with fat. And that if we eliminated as much fat as possible, particularly fats that contained cholesterol, which isn't a fat, by the way, and is vitally important to to the brain and uh, hormonal system, for example, that we would turn the heart disease epidemic right around and send it back where it came from. What we know now is that that was a mistake, that there was a big battle between the anti-fat people and the anti-sugar people and the anti-fat people lost. Uh, uh, Sorry, the anti-fat people won. The sugar people had a bigger budget than the the dairy farmers whose whole milk sale cut in half, more than in half, and and have never rebounded, for example. So our first mistake was to vilify saturated fat, which we had been thriving on for 2 million years at normal weights and optimal health. So that was the first thing. So we eliminated the good fats. We did substitute uh, damaged and highly processed fats. So we didn't even lose calories there. We just switched to modern, damaged, highly processed fats, which have a lot of health, adverse health consequences, including inflammation, which is a whole part of, of a natural weight gain. So what did we do in addition to that? Probably even more important, we introduced fruit, free fructose into our food supply. We'd never had free fructose before table sugar, sucrose, which is the the sugar that was uh, invented in India about 500 BC, was is a combination of fructose and glucose bound together in a 50-50 ratio. Very, very unusual plant. And we were able to tolerate increasing amounts of that without weight gain or without much degenerative disease. Not to say that in the 50s when we started eating 120 pounds a year of it, That was a good thing. We know that it contributed to the heart disease epidemic, uh, significantly, but it did not contribute to the diabetes epidemic. There was no diabetes in, until the 1970s. That's when it started to bound forward and by the 1990s we had a full, a full on epidemic in the United States and it was traveling rapidly throughout the world and fructose the type of sugar that we've been eating since the 1970s twice more than twice as sweet as uh, the old-fashioned table sugar and much more addictive
0: this is the this is a high fructose corn syrup that That's about, right. Okay.
1: So corn syrup, agave syrup and fruit syrup they're all very very high in free fructose which the body just doesn't know what to do with that amount of free fructose that isn't bound with glucose. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, I could talk the whole time about fructose, but that was uh, probably the most significant thing that happened in the 70s. However, uh, when you combine it with losing our traditional fats, it's a disaster, and then really we only have one macronutrient left because people stop eating protein as well because protein is, all the amino acids in protein are always bound up with fat. So in order to get rid of all animal fats, they had to basically get rid of all animal protein as well. So the other and probably the most significant of, of all foods in terms of the development of the human brain and why it's three times larger than the, the brain of other primates, that we began to eat a lot of red meat, which was low fat you know, these were animals that were running all the time. So it was the amino acids that were so critical. But we tolerated animal fat very, very well as it increased over time, you know, as we began to use herd animals instead of hunting wild animals so much and so forth. So at that point, we couldn't eat protein, we couldn't eat fat. So we were left with carbohydrate. And the kinds of carbohydrates that began to be Popularized at that time were deadly. You know, Mm -hmm. we're talking about carb loading on almost completely nutrient void pastas and sweets, white flour products, and and a variety of of mixtures of sugars. And of course chocolate and and so forth uh, that add to the addictiveness of processed commercial foods. So those are the main things that happened. So as a result, you know, our carbohydrate intake Tripled our protein intake was cut in by two thirds, and of course our fat intake actually changed very little, but the quality of our fats drastically changed. This is the kind of food that we began to eat was unrecognize would have been unrecognizable to someone from any time before.
0: 1930 really yeah let's it just seems like uh today i was looking on instagram and i'm friends with chris kresher i'm not sure if you're familiar with chris or not but uh chris posted a study a new study that came out and they were again vilifying meat vilifying animal protein (laughs) (laughs) what are your thoughts on that you work with different people and you've seen the outcome of i'm pretty sure you mentioned in your book that you work with with vegans and vegetarians and and you've always been this proponent for meat and why do we seem to, in the society, attack meat all the time?
1: Well, it started with this, you know, with, with this fear of fat because you you just can't have meat without fat. You can have dairy products without fat, which a lot of people have done involuntarily, I might add. A low-fat dairy is really terrible, from, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but that was the beginning. And then we began to uh, be acquainted with the whole vegetarian um, spiritual argument and and then the ethical arguments and the, the reality of the suffering of the animals in because of industrial animal farming. So all of these things combined, that the truth is, though, that there are very few vegans in the world. There are certainly not very many who don't eat meat. Fifty percent of vegans worldwide who are Buddhists typically eat meat. The Dalai Lama eats meat. Um, uh, mm-hmm. and, and the Buddha himself was not a vegan. Buddha ate dairy products and eggs and he was very fond of honey. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, um, all of these sort of mistaken, but exciting to us. America is a country that gets excited about a new diet. It's been like this for over a hundred years. I don't know when we became so, uh, sort of hysterical about finding a new diet when we already had <laughs> foods that were supporting our health and beauty. You know, what more do you need? Uh, but we decided we needed a diet that supported our spiritual life too, which is a very lovely concept, except that there are very few people in the world who have done it. And for example, the vegetarians in India are notoriously low in in iron for example, which is a vital nutrient. They have high uh, rates of anemia even among children. So these are experimental diets with no research behind them. We have just launched into these um, radical ways of eating in, in, in the spirit of adventure and revolution and progress. But without the, you know, without the evidence to support it.
0: I want to go back to the brain because your book reminded me of something I knew, but sometimes you forget these things, and when you read them, you like, oh yeah, I remember that. But your the brain is the takes up the most glucose in the body. It takes a lot for the brain glucose for the brain to run. But you talk about something in this book that I haven't seen a lot of, and really, the last time I talked about it. I think it was with, I had a show about gluten and it was advanced glycated end products. But you also talk about how that process happens, what produces that process and that's glycation. But can you go into glycation and tell and and just talk about what that is and why that's so important when it it comes to dealing with glucose and sugar and and the techno carbs?
1: (laughs) Well, it's um, one of the startling things is how few people know that it exists they don't know what it is they've never heard mm-hmm. the term before and so it's terribly important that people get very familiar intellectually with what's happening to them without their being knowledgeable one of the uh, well let's talk about what it is it's actually a kind of damage that all the cells of the body are vulnerable to and there are t- there there are two perpetrators here that that do this cellular damage one of them has been known for many many years and that's the kind of damage that's that's done by toasted foods mm-hmm. and uh, there are various names for it but um, most of us have been uh, familiar with this concept that burnt toasted you know overly browned foods are, actually do damage they 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 create injury to our cells broadly but that was tolerable. You know, we had toast every morning but we didn't have the degenerative diseases that glycation is so central to until fairly recently and it really until fructose, free fructose unbound with glucose was introduced because free fructose is more than 10 times more glycating than any other form of sugar. So, and And the body doesn't know what to do with it so it gets a free ride. Glucose is, can be limited by you know, ancient body s- systems that know when we've had enough. But fructose can't be. It actually turns off some of the appetite guardians of the body. And so it, it can flood the bloodstream unregulated. And that means that it travels all over the place and damages cells wherever it goes, in the brain, in the liver, in the bloodstream itself. As a matter of fact, you know the disease that's most associated with glycation is diabetes, mm-hmm. and the way that people measure their vulnerability to diabetes is by a blood test that measures glycated hemoglobin, actually blood cells in the bloodstream that have been damaged by fructose or by the the Browning syndrome, which is toasted foods but mostly by fructose. And if your level of glycated cells is high, you are diabetic. If they are moderately high, you are pre-diabetic. So all of the degenerative diseases, particularly diabetes, are intimately associated with glycation. And we're not going to get rid of them until we can stop eating glycating substances, and that means fructose. The glycation experts are clear that if we weren't eating fructose, we could have barbecue and toast and whatever, but we can't have both. And so we've got to stop the cravings for this highly addictive substance that's destroying us.
0: What's, what's going on in our brains before, before I get into that, but I had another question with regards to all this glucose. Are, are we getting too much in the brain? Because they, they actually are saying that. Alzheimer's, which seems to be affecting, I've had several fa- family members with Alzheimer's and dementia, mm-hmm. and it seems to be that they're saying that they're really listing Alzheimer's as type 3 diabetes. It's just because we're getting so much influx, influx of these technocarbs in the body that suddenly it's just have the brain is getting overloaded with just too much, too much glucose.
1: Yes, Alzheimer's is very clearly a disease of glycation. So again, fructose. Is not glucose, but fructose is really the the problem. The body knows how to protect itself against glucose, but not against fru- fructose. And fructose is just more glycating than glucose. G- glucose doesn't damage in the same way, but in terms of of uh, blood sugar in the brain, the brain has a particular disability. It's vulnerable because it it it, it can't and doesn't store glucose the way the rest of the body does. You know, we've got glucose stores all over the place in the body and all of our muscles and so forth, but the brain doesn't have that. So it is completely reliant on a supply of glucose, a regular, constant supply of glucose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, our blood sugar is so dysregulated that we can't keep the supply going. And, and levels uh, can drop and the brain
0: sends out emergency
1: calls. And they start eating uh, sweet things, but it also can't function normally and produce the kinds of appetite regulating neurotransmitters that it can do when its function is consistent and, you know, full on. Mm
0: -hmm. Fructose, we're talking about this, and every time I hear about fructose, I'm always thinking about fruit, but you're talking about fructose, and I think we (laughs) made this distinction earlier on in the interview, but... From your book you said that fructose affects some hormones and I believe that was leptin and and, and ghrelin ghrelin ghrelin, ghrelin. Can't and, ever pronounce and and insulin so let's right. talk about that a little bit because I think that's important for the audience to know what those hormones do and how fructose affects those hormones
1: well it let's take insulin for example insulin levels rise when we've ingested too much glucose and that removes the glucose the excess glucose from the bloodstream that's a regulatory uh, lifesaver you know when when it's overdone which it's being uh, because we're eating you know too much glucose it turns into you know diabetes you know it's it's the main avenue to diabetes but when when fructose is ingested the body doesn't know what's going on the the glucose mechanism does not change and so the fructose is allowed this free ride into the bloodstream for tremendously wide circulation so that's one mechanism leptin and ghrelin are also uh, they are more appetite regulators and whereas glucose excess glu- glu- glucose uh, turns the regulatory hormones on so that they send the signal to the body that's it you know we're satisfied we don't need any more food but fructose does the reverse It keeps them turned off so that we never really are satisfied. We can always be eating more snacks. And that's pretty much what we're doing is eating snacking from morning till night.
0: You have people out here who are eating. I've seen videos of people say they eat umpteen bananas a day. And I know that this we're talking about high fructose corn syrup. Is fruit a different matter altogether or is fruit thrown in that same category?
1: No, it's not in the same category. Fruit is very different. Fruits vary a lot in their uh, sugar content. Most of them are a combination of plain glucose, a a bound combination of fructose with glucose, and some free fructose. Um, so there, so there's plenty of glucose, there's plenty of bound fructose, but there's not very much in proportion of free fructose. There's always some, mm-hmm. but we've always thought of fructose as the, the safe sugar. And that's really because it doesn't raise insulin. You know, we just were mistaken. We didn't understand that that, that wasn't a good thing.
0: You mentioned in the book your thing is techno carbs which is for carbohydrates it seems like the 70s like you said changed everything was this just because we didn't know enough or do you think and i don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist but do you think that it's because this was all by design to start this cascade of illness so people could be sick and people could be obese and now that, now that that's come about the the master plan is out there, and now it's time for people to kind of say, "Hey, this is what's going on," and now I know I need to kind of eat, you know, eat better foods.
1: Well, I can answer. You know, uh, I'd like to define techno carbs uh, mm-hmm. first of all, which which are the the modern masterpieces of food science. They are sixty percent nutrient void. They're certainly mostly devoid of, of any uh, healthful carbohydrates, fats, or protein. And they are targeted. They're specifically targeted by the food industry and what they call bliss point technology to affect the, the five areas of the brain that create sensations of pleasure and turn, activate, and over those those, uh, those centers. So there's something called... Neuro marketing, <clears throat> which is bound up with the food industry's efforts over the last 40, 50 years to create substances that we will be unable to resist. There was a, a, a very important whistleblower, David Kessler, the former head of the FDA, Food and Drug Administration, who made friends with uh, all the, the uh, CEOs of the drug companies and of the big food companies and he wrote a book after he left the agency, and in it he quoted food industry uh, you know leaders repeatedly, saying, "It's really too bad that the ingredients that have made these foods so irresistible and so lucrative have also made them so deadly." And he also made it clear that they had no intention of changing that. So I think that you know in the in the 70s and 80s when the brain chemistry of appetite became you know elucidated and they and they saw what was needed in order to make a substance irresistible and make the brain vulnerable to that substance so it needed it for a temporary surge of pleasure that that was you know a business decision and and they feel you know really triumphant that they have been able to market these products so cleverly and, but more than that, that the products themselves are such clever, uh, brain targeted pharmaceuticals. And as I say in the book, you know, dressed up like adorable little, you know, things called Twinkie and, uh, you know. Mm-hmm. Dorito.
0: Yeah, actually, I had a gentleman on Mark. Uh, I can't remember Mark's last name. It's a it's a crazy name, but I can't remember. what he had a book called The Dorito Effect when all of this stuff started happening with the Doritos. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I it's always good to hear this stuff from someone else, because a lot of times people think it's all conspiracy theory, but it's people that are actually sitting behind the scenes engineering this food to be addictive. And once you start eating it, it's, 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 you can't get off of it. I remember I used to be a Taco Bell freak and uh-huh. I just I don't even eat. I haven't been in a McDonald's or Burger King or Taco Bell in I, I don't know how long. I just made a decision to stop it. But I could have sworn to certain things I was addicted to and I was addicted right. to gluten as well. And I got gluten out of my diet. I know I'm gluten sensitive, but I would sit there and eat like, you know, the roll, the whole roll of cookies like the Oreo cookies. I would eat a whole two sleeves of those. Because mm-hmm. I was even though it was bad for me. I, yeah, I couldn't stop. I could not right. stop. But uh, let's let's go into these you mentioned these five centers of the brain and I guess this is just going to be a refresher as you know the mood cure, but there are people out there who might have not listened to that that interview. But what are those five neurotransmitters?
1: Um uh, okay. Let me just say one thing before I go into it and that is yeah, sure. the, that I, the in the craving here I talk about the research on specifically on chocolate chip cookies and M and M's showing which Of these brain centers is being affected there's research showing how which of these five pleasure centers in the brain are being lit up by even advertisements for these kinds of food which is how the marketing works so that the marketing images themselves uh, start the addictive process going in the brain so, oh, by the way, David, David Kessler's book—forgot to mention—it's called *The End of Overeating*. It's well worth a read; it really is. He did us a great favor by uh, exposing the food industry, which he was clearly reluctant to do. But he himself had been suffering from overweight since childhood, and he just couldn't—he couldn't keep this information to himself. At any rate, on to exactly. Where the crime is being committed, it's in the brain which does control our appetite and it, it interacts with hormones like insulin, ghrelin, and leptin. But uh, these five centers are, are clearly the primary players here in appetite regulation. So I'll start with the neurotransmitter, the uh, specialized cell in the brain that emits a, uh, a substance called endorphin, which is pretty well known mm-hmm. um, as our natural painkiller. our our natural uh, euphorians, joy producer. So we're perfectly capable, the brain's perfectly capable of making endless amounts of endorphin if it's well supplied with protein and not too terribly stressed or poisoned but when it's exposed to foods that target endorphin like anything with chocolate for example but most of the foods that are combined together in, in these commercial products do impact the endorphins. So the part of the brain that should be making us feel comforted and happy, joyous really, is not producing the natural endorphins. And instead, we have to rely on a drug substance to overstimulate an underfunctioning cell so that what few endorphins there are, are forced into activity for a while and overactivity. in the long run that depletes them further and we become more dependent on these external sources of pleasure temporary pleasure you always have to go back because of the cravings that are produced when we don't so then comfort food eaters are deficient in endorphin but then we have the the people who eat because they're depressed anxious and negative worried they don't sleep well. These are people who mostly crave in the afternoon and evening, just when our brain produces less of its natural antidepressant serotonin
0: that's the, so, the is that the depressed craver
1: that's the depressed craver.
0: Okay, I'm that. Uh, you're that. <laughs> <laughs> uh but but I want to interrupt you because I had a bigger bit of an issue with depressed cuz I feel like I'm never depressed but the way that you describe some of the things in the book that like being anxious I think one thing we might have been like kind of hyperactive. I've always been hy- hyperactive. Yes. And uh, there were a few other things that I could I could agree on but I'm like I'm never depressed. But but go ahead. We'll get into my my stuff a little bit later here but <laughs> go ahead.
1: <laughs> well, it's from what you told me earlier, we're, it's going to be good news. Uh, so stick with us. Uh, okay. So, so the next one is the low blood sugar craving. Another big group of uh, hypoglycemics who tend to skip meals or eat snacks, which are out of the bloodstream too fast to sustain uh, level blood sugar. Those people also have repercussions to the brain that leads to cravings. So. When you, when you eat something sweet, for example, blood sugar spikes, then insulin comes in to take it out and then there's nothing. And that's a dangerous, dangerous state to be in, especially for the brain. But, you know, when we're in that state, we, we crave sugar and starch so that we can refuel and get those blood sugar levels up again. We also feel stressed, irritable. Maybe even uh, shaky people who have that low blood sugar tendency pretty much know who they are, and there's a there's a solution, simple nutritional solution to that we'll get to that doesn't involve eating a lot of sugar and starch. So then we're we're to our fourth, which is our natural tranquilizer. when we're stressed, about seventy percent of us turn to junk foods to to ease that because they have the capacity of of affecting the cells in the brain in this case it's called GABA which would ordinarily be making lots of tranquilizing neurotransmitters but in our current depleted state often isn't and especially under the amount of stress that we're under of all kinds and so we become dependent on foods that can give us a short surge of GABA and tend to snack on them whenever stress levels go up instead of the, the big solid meal that would actually restore the brain to normal function. We've given up three meals a day decades ago. And finally, the last pleasure set in the brain that's so important, which is serviced artificially by caffeine and chocolate, but also by pure sugar for some people, is our energizing Brain centers, brain center, which produces neurotransmitters like dopamine. A lot of people know about that, mm-hmm. which is a big factor in in pleasure. But norepinephrine too, which allows us to feel energized and and focused. Uh, it has a great deal to do with our ability to concentrate. Uh, so, all of these marvelous things that our brain can naturally produce—you know—energy, tranquility, joy. Uh, evenness, all of that happiness, freedom from fear, all of that marvelous stuff, uh, you know, all of those neurotransmitters are depleted to a certain extent in almost everyone. And our only recourse is to use drug substances that will directly affect those particular brain sites. So we could use cocaine, we could use alcohol, tobacco, and we can also now rely on packaged foods that are designed to do just that and forget about the
0: nourishment. You said also, I believe, um, I believe this is the first of your books that you mentioned cannabis or marijuana. And that was one of the things that I believe affected the newest addition. Yes, yes. To to
1: the brain targeted food industry. Well, I do talk about it in the addiction chapter in the mood cure, but I have a section uh, in the book that takes each of the components of this brain-targeted industrial uh, food process and explains what part of the brain it stimulates. So, for example, you talk about gluten. Well, we're eating more gluten than ever since the 1970s when a new form of gluten was developed and began to be used uh, worldwide. And that gluten itself has a second name, which gives you a clue about what part of the brain gluten affects? It's also called gluteomorphin. So morphin, morphine, it targets our natural painkillers, the endorphins. And, and that's why it can become so irresistible, particularly when it's combined with chocolate, which also heavily targets the endorphins. And then again, we have our, our dairy lovers, you know, who, who it's all about ice cream frozen yogurt, cheese, and, and of course, the, the pizza lovers who are probably the, in the greatest number <laughs> uh-huh. that combine the gluten with casein, which is one of the proteins, the, one of the major proteins in dairy products, and it also has an alternative name, which is uh, casomorphin. So, for some people, and I'm one of those people, um, the the uh, the protein, and I have to say the fat, which uh, fat can also and always does raise endorphin levels, not to the extent that chocolate does, not to the extent that cannabis does or alcohol or, or any of the other drugs, but it's just a natural feature of fat. We have to have it and the fact that we like it ensures that we will eat it. But We don't necessarily overeat fat, and we didn't overeat fat for the most part until the 1970s.
0: Yeah, we're talking about all these products, the ice cream and the breads and things of that nature. It makes me think about weight, and one of the things you discussed in your book is calories and how calories – it just seems like no one can – really agree on calories. Like, should we be eating 2,500 calories a day? Should we be, ate, be eating 1,800? Should we be ate, eating 800? I've seen people drop calories as low as 500 calories a day. When we're dropping our calories, it's, it's just bring on those those cravings.
1: Absolutely. The rebound cravings after low-calorie diets are, you know, reliable. They they are always increased. And we we learned a huge lesson. This is one of the areas that we have researched least is our sort of obsession since the 1970s when our weight began to to rise with low-calorie dieting. Nobody ever bothered to research that. Um, Well, it's it's a fascinating story. Actually, there was one researcher who did. He did a six-month study uh, on healthy college-age men. He put them on a 1200 calorie, about 1200 calorie diet and they all became totally neurotic, craving-riddled, obsessed with food. Of course they lost weight, which they didn't need to lose, muscle mass in particular. And ironically, this this man who documented in three volumes the biology of human starvation was written by Ansel Keys, who's also the clearly the architect of our low-fat mm-hmm. obsession. So he knew what he was doing. When he recommended this huge calorie adjustment <laughs> to the human diet. So in a couple, well, about a year and a half ago, two years ago, there was a big story that was first released in the New York Times. Gina Colada, our great diet reporter, you know, sticking with this, this uh, nightmare course all this time, told us yet another frightening story. The, the winners of the biggest loser mm-hmm. competition had finally, there was some research done on them. Their blood was drawn when they first were accepted in the competition and then again six years later. So this is a good length of time and what they report subjectively is that their cravings are over the moon, that they got much worse and you can imagine they were obese to be really obese to begin with. Their cravings were very severe then. They're much worse now And their weight has spiraled out of control, even though in a lot of cases, they're certainly not eating more than they did to begin with, and yet their weight has gone higher than when they started the competition in a lot of cases. So what they learned from this, it was really simple. They didn't do any elaborate, no genetic testing, no really elaborate blood testing, but what what the testing did show was that a number of metabolic appetite-regulating factors like thyroid hormone were depleted and had never returned to normal. So let's take thyroid hormone, you know, which regulates calorie burning. So it always drops with a low-calorie diet, but, you know, we we would hope that it comes back and and it typically does come back to normal so that we can regulate our weight. But with these people, it did not. It has never returned to the level that it was before they started this particular radical diet. And by the way, no one is saying how many calories they ate so that the the research is really useless in a way. We know that whatever they did harmed them permanently, but what we don't know is how low did they get. They were supposed to be eating a 1,500-calorie diet, but all of their trainers told them to go under that. So that we know that at least some of them, at least some of the time we're eating as, as few as 500 calories a day.
0: One in the spectrum, you have people that are bigger, biggest loser who have had issues with their weight. Most of them had issues with weight probably all of their lives or or a period of their lives. Then you have the other quote unquote, what I will call healthy people, which are the bodybuilders and the fitness. competitors (laughs) you've you've worked with those people as well i believe in the book you said that you someone came attended one of your seminars and they were working with a bodybuilder and they had some success with this amino therapy with regards to cravings and one of the things i've seen with a lot of these bodybuilders is that they are when they're in season or in competition they're in peak peak shape and then when they're not you hardly even recognize them but talk about huh? that and how you've had some success with helping these people with just these common cravings for food. Because I think we all get them when we start dropping our calories. I know I've experienced it myself and I'm not even a bodybuilder and I've had some, some issues where I've tried to drop calories and I'm like, every time I see pizza or something like that, I'm, it's like, I can't, it's like crack to me because I can't, yeah. <laughs> I can't seem it to can't shake be it out. Like, yeah. I want to <laughs> eat it.
1: So. Yeah. Th- And, and that, and what that translates to is that you're starving yourself and you need to eat something, maybe not that. So what I can tell you is that before we had we've done a lot of work with, you know, the clients of personal trainers who sent them in to us. Their trainers have sent them to us because they couldn't comply with, you know, the diet that the trainer had recommended to them, which was oftentimes, you know, very good quality food and, and oftentimes adequate amounts, but they just couldn't do it. You know, vegetables and protein. Even with additional fat, they just couldn't do it. And, uh, so we were always able to turn off the cravings and that allowed them then to go back to their trainer and stick with it and, you know, become, you know, fit, meet their goal. So the word got around and eventually this fellow who consulted in the bodybuilding industry ended up taking a weekend training that I did and came up to me afterwards and told me that he had been reading the diet cure and the mood cure and that he was brought in as a consultant on a number of high level competitors to, to consult on uh, with a number of high level competitors and he told me about one in particular who had like the best definition in the world he was able to develop muscle And that, and partly because he was a good protein eater, but he, you know, he just was gifted, obviously, his his physique, but he couldn't stay away from the carbs, could not. And so he never had top wins because he just couldn't stay away from them long enough to to keep that definition obvious until this consultant worked with him, put him on the aminos, and all of a sudden he didn't care about the carbs. And he started to win. This same consultant took me to meet with the top management of a big bodybuilding products company. And, and they told me this is the black hole in bodybuilding. Nobody knows what to do. They can't give them the kind of advice that will help. They're always failing in this one thing. And, and they were, you know, completely on board with the possibility that this amino acid Technology, you know, brain feeding technology could solve that problem. So it 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 startled me. It because the the bodybuilding industry is not just competitors, you know, all you know, millions of people who love the whole bodybuilding thing and just for fun and for vanity, of course. But everywhere they're running into this problem that they can't solve.
0: One of the things that attracts me to this is the fact that to me, it's very affordable when you're looking at different things, going to the doctor and doing all these different diet programs, just doing the aminos is very affordable. I mean, I had some 5-HTP here that I've had for a while since talking to you about the mood cure that I forgot about. (laughs) But, But I don't think I even, I don't think that I paid maybe nine ten bucks and it has 240 pills or so mm-hmm. so it's not something that's going to break the bank and it really attracts me to be able to have these things that are so affordable and to cut these cravings which most people when they have these cravings they're going out buying cookies and bread and all oh these, spending much more than yeah, nine dollars that's yeah, for much sure more than nine dollars but one of the things I've always thought, I don't know if you're going to agree with me or disagree with me, but I thought I'd ask this is that I always thought that maybe for, for anyone that's coming in with a weight issue or just someone regular off the street, if I was a nutritionist or anyone else, I, my, my two baseline things would be. Using this immunotherapy, because I think everybody at some point is depleted in serotonin and and all other neurotransmitters. And also you and I met through something with the food sensitivity testing, which I think is a big thing for a lot of people. And they don't know that they're having these issues. My thing was gluten and I always crave gluten. And when I took that out of my diet, I was able to normalize my weight. But do you agree with that as far as? doing those things? I know that you're doing them within your clinic and helping others, but do you think that that should just be a baseline thing for people that are coming in that might have weight issues or having issues with, with foods that they're craving?
1: Well, certainly if they're craving a food that has no critical health benefits like bread, that's got to go. If food or, or diabetes or you know any number of, of uh, health problems uh, is at issue. But there's no point in in laying down regulations like that, because if people crave, they don't have the control to to lay off of food even when they know for sure that it's contributing to their weight and health problems. So, what we, what we do and what I suggest, Craving Cure, is to make a list of the foods that you crave. That, and, and you can put them in, you know, categories of useless and toxic substances, and then things that have nutritional value, but that you can't stop eating, you know, like whole wheat, organic whole wheat products, or, or dairy products, particularly, you know, grass-fed, organic, all kinds of nutrients in it, but if you can't stop eating it, it could be a problem. So you make a list of the things that you'd prefer not to be eating and, and then you'd go to your own brain and figure out which pleasure centers you need to repair so that you'll be satisfied and pleased with what you eat without recourse to foods that, that you can't, whose consumption you can't control. So that's where we go is first turn off the cravings and then look at elimination and challenge. So if you suspect that gluten's a problem, first turn off your cravings for it and eliminate it for a week and then reintroduce it in, you know, in a very clear way and see how you do. If it turns on those cravings again, you can't stop eating it and you don't need the calories. There's nothing about it that really is health critical. Then it's got to stay off the list. Some people, once they get their neurotransmitter function organized, can tolerate a serving of something every now and then without becoming addicted to it. in in having too much of it Um, and other people can't just like with alcohol you know some people with the aminos can have a glass of wine once a week and not think about it the rest of the time or even care that much if they have it other people don't think much about it until they do have a glass of wine and then they can't stop thinking about it and for those people complete abstinence has got to be the order of business but with the aminos you don't suffer and one of the important things to say is that not only are they cheap, but they're temporary. As soon as you have stopped your cravings for junk food, you are going to be eating lots of protein, which contains all 20 amino acids, animal protein does. And and there you'll be, be supporting your own brain chemistry, and you won't need the additional supplements. Although I, I do recommend that because you never know when a big stressor is going to hit you, illness whatever to keep your you know, your most important amino's in the refrigerator so that if you do need them they're right there like like you have your 5 HDP in the drawer it's it's been waiting for you
0: going back to food and mood and i i wanted to ask you this during the mood cure i always ask questions or think about questions after i get finished with the interview but i'm going to ask you this question <laughs> now and it's kind of probably a loaded question but how much does food affect our mood? And the second part of that question is going over these, working with people with these aminos. And I'm sure you probably work with people who have were depressed. Were you able to get them off SSRIs? And I know that these can you can work. The aminos can work in combination with the SSRIs. But have you been able to eliminate? people from or help people from getting off these SSRIs by using this immunotherapy.
1: Well when we first heard about SSRIs, you know, I was outraged, you know, <laughs> because mm-hmm. I knew that the aminos could do a better job. But then, you know, we were buried in, in uh in clients who were on them and many of them had gained weight because of it, had lost their normal sex drive because of it had you know, lost their normal vitality. They weren't depressed anymore, but they weren't enjoying life either, and many other side effects, which I document. There's a list in the book, but but a longer list on the website, the volunteer website. So we worked out a way of just seamlessly taking people off of antidepressants, and I describe it. There's a whole chapter on alternatives to antidepressants, and it's basically a very simple maneuver. And as I say, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of people, and interestingly enough. We only had one, uh, prescriber object in all these years because they're so used to people coming in and saying, I hate this SSRI, it's got this side effect or that side effect, and, and they try a different one. So they're used to withdrawing people from SSRIs. And so, but, but they're particularly happy to do that with our technique because we actually have, you know, with their permission, uh, we have the client take the appropriate amino acid at the other end of the day from from the end of the day where they're currently taking their antidepressant so that they can see the effect of it. And if the effect is very good, which it invariably is, even though they're on an antidepressant, when they take this amino acid, they feel ever so much better. And if that lasts for two weeks, which it almost inevitably does, then they go to their doctor and say, okay, give me the withdrawal sheet. And they continue to take the amino at one end of the day and the antidepressant at the other. Taper down the antidepressant, taper up the amino until they're, they're done. And it could take a few weeks to a few months. And it's almost invariably very comfortable and uneventful. There are a few antidepressants that do cause some pretty terrible instant withdrawal, uh, problems. And in those cases, there's a bridge technique in which they switch from an antidepressant like, uh, Fexor or, or Welbutrin to uh, an, the antidepressant prozac and then taper down on that, so this is just a lovely process, very easy for a person to do on their own with the guidance of the mood cures chapter. but more and more uh, nutritionists are getting trained in how to do this and support to support people through this process.
0: We're going a little bit over. I hope that's okay. I don't want to keep you too too longer but well, it's,
1: it's okay with me, but I don't know how long. Uh, you can
0: keep broadcasting. <laughs> <laughs> I can keep broadcasting. But I try to kind of cut the show just so people's attention span. But I just wanted to just say my testimonial about using this. I I had forgotten about it. I'd interviewed you maybe a year ago, and I was mm-hmm. on it pretty heavily, and I'd forgotten about it. And then reading the book, I was like, oh, you know what? I'm having these cravings at work. Like I would eat my lunch and then I would have these cravings for candy. I would bring a, a brownie or something, a gluten-free brownie or something of that nature. The <laughs> other, the other day I tried it and I noticed around, usually around two or three is when I start craving and okay. I eat, a, eat around 12. And I tried the five HTP and it it's like three, four, five. And I'm going home and I'm like, wow, I didn't have that craving for, for any sweets today. And, I, you know, I noticed that. So, it, I mean, it does work. And the thing about it is, like you say, you don't have to be on it the whole time. It's just something that you do and you're feeling better. And then if you are not, you can go back to it. Is, is that correct?
1: Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, you just need a little boost very briefly and whether it's a couple of weeks, that, that would, it would be typical and then if your diet ramped up in the protein department, you typically don't need it. There are some people who have genetic problems with mood in particular and they may need low-level low supplementation for a long time, particularly if there is addiction in the family, they'll need their aminos for at least a year but that's unusual and children You can get them off the stuff in weeks and normalize their output and their appetites.
0: So I figured out from your questionnaire that I'm a depressed craver and a comfort craver. And then there was one that, and I can't remember which one it was, that you said that these people are pretty much, these type of cravers are pretty much predisposed to being pre-diabetic or diabetic. Which one was that?
1: Uh Uh-huh. That was the crashed craver that, okay, that yeah. tends to have the spikes of blood sugar followed by the crashes where you really crave.
0: And this, this particular, like if they do what you say in this book, those people can kind of reverse that or stop the damage that's already, that's already happened is what I understand. Oh, from.
1: yes. It's just amazing. So, for example, diabetics, the nutritional information about diabetics is starting to come in. They're actually crudely deficient in 11 nutrients. And one of the top deficiencies is in the amino acid glutamine, which regulates blood sugar when glucose levels are not controllable. The glutamine can be used instead. And when we give glutamine to uh, to diabetics as well as people with low blood sugar, it's instant that their their uh, glucose levels normalize and their numbers go down into the normal range. There's been some, some nice studies uh, showing that uh, insulin resistance was reduced as well. It's, it's a marvelous amino acid. It's like the medical golden child. There's so much research on glutamine and all the different positive uh, contributions that it makes, but it's just becoming recognized, uh, you know, what a boon it is for blood sugar re- re-regulation.
0: Yeah, I know a lot of, uh, nutritionists recommend that for gut health for to repair. gut. Yeah. yeah, that's a yeah. really good, good thing. Two more questions and I'm going to let you go. One <laughs> of cause we could, we could do this for probably three hours, but right. <laughs> the, you, you touched on something that I have not seen in many, many books. And, and I've always thought about this. And I think that we do this a lot of times here in where we are because we're all just kind of a melting pot. And you mentioned in the book about adopting a diet, like certain people was start trying to eat Asian food, or and that's all that they want to they want to decide to eat. But when they're not Asian, how does that affect us? And I I think really that there are certain people who can't handle spicy foods. They might be able to handle spicy foods better. But I know that we have this tendency to do this. In America, because we are everybody comes from so many different places, and we don't try each other each other's food. But this this one of those things that might lend to cravings when we're eating out of our element, so to speak. Well,
1: yes in the in the craving cure, I talk about some of the obvious things. So, for example, if you know what most of your ancestors if if most of your ancestors ate in a particular way, and you know what they ate, it is almost guaranteed that you're going to be very successful on that same diet mm-hmm. for example everybody who's been primarily oriental has been very well on rice vegetable and animal protein based diets they actually have um, this is one of the fascinating things that that Sally Fallon discovered was that they've actually had a genetic adaptation to be able to digest rice which most of us can't do that well
0: mm-hmm. I don't
1: um, <laughs> Okay, right. Yes. So that's one good example. The other thing, though, that that useful is that a lot of us just don't know what our you know what our ancestors ate. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you? I mean, what they thrived on. I don't. So I don't. So uh, because I'm a big hodgepodge of genetic types. So, but what what we can look at is our blood type, and of course now there's more genetic information, which is very intriguing, and I think we'll know a lot more. From it over time, but what we've learned it primarily is about type O's and type A's, you know, who, who make up most of the human population. And that type O's are really the, you know, the, the ancient original blood type. And we've never seen almost, I think there's been one exception, a, a type O clan who didn't need to avoid some of the more relatively modern foods like grains and beans, you know, doing beautifully on the ancient foods. You know the roots, the the berries, the the greens, uh, and animal protein. Often not so so great on milk either. On the other hand, the A's, the other big group, don't have the the health capacity of the O's, and that seems largely because they don't have such good hydrochloric acid production. So they often have difficulty with red meat, for example, and they think I don't know what they think, but but uh, they don't ever do a an HCL challenge, which we always do with type A's because they digest protein much more efficiently when they have enough HCL and an HCL deficiency is considered to be a factor in the higher rate of cancer among type A's. So there's a lot of reason to respect the limitations and the tendencies nutritionally that our blood types provide we have seen so few types b and ab that we don't know what to make of them (laughs) in terms of diet but these are some of the things that we take into account and we always go back to the fact that we're, we're either you know we know that we for most of our history on the planet did really well on various kinds of vegetables fruits and and, uh, proteins and fats however you know for 10,000 years we've been herding animals and growing crops and we have adapted until the 1970s it wasn't causing us any any uh, weight problems or disease problems to eat those foods you know we had we may have lost people along the way when we were you know changing the diet but there was some gratitude for having food even in the winter you know when half the population would die, you know, among hunters gatherers, that it was worth the you know, whatever the downside was. So I think it's something we have to really look at when it comes to gluten and dairy intolerance is that it's it may be more the modern alterations in the grains and mm-hmm. the the animals, the you know, the the milk sources. For example, going from to, to primarily Holstein milk was a radical change in in the quality of our milk, and a lot of people can't tolerate it. But could those same people tolerate the earlier strains, you know, of milk?
0: Actually, I got two more questions if I if you allow <laughs> me, because <laughs> I wanted to get this this one last question because I'm really intrigued by, it, and I think I need to ask it. But you mentioned also in the book that sometimes a little goes a long way, and you mentioned. That you work with people with this therapy and you've had, you didn't have to use it as much aminos with them. And I think you specifically mentioned Native Americans and oh, yeah. Af- Africans as well. Talk a little bit about that because I know there's some, there's somebody's going to be out there that's listening to the show and they're probably going to use it and realize that they have some, some kind of reaction. But I wanted you to talk about that because I know that that's somebody's going to maybe experience that.
1: Okay. Well, the, Uh, Let me say first that the craving cure is very particular to point out if there are any even remotely common adverse symptoms to an amino acid so that people will know what they're getting into. For example, if they have high blood pressure, it's very clear that if you were going to experiment with the amino acid tyrosine, you start with a quarter of a capsule because it might raise your blood pressure. On the other hand, one whole capsule might do nothing to your blood pressure, but get right to your brain, and increase your natural stimulants so that you don't care about caffeine and chocolate. So that said, the extraordinary thing that we have seen in working with lots of different people is that European Americans, there's some variation even among them, and and a lot of times we don't know what we have. People maybe don't talk about the fact that they have African or Native American blood because nobody earlier on in the family wanted to admit it, but uh, we've seen a tremendous amount of variation in the reaction to aminos only among Native Americans and African Americans are sort of second in sensitivity and re- responsiveness, so this is a positive thing. Mm-hmm. In other words, a, a European American might need four capsules of a particular amino acid to get optimized and then gradually they wouldn't need as much, and they'd go down to nothing over the month. But a Native American would never need more than one capsule, and that would do just as much or more. And this was explained to me at a, a meeting where I was given an award by the tribal clinics of the state of California for my work with aminos among the various tribes and Rancheria's reservations. And what they told me is that the reason... That they 're so responsive is that they have the hunter gatherer digestive system, and uh, that means that they consume or they utilize every molecule that they consume extremely efficiently, so that if they get something that's positive they 're going to use every single bit of it and it 's going to be distributed perfectly within their brain and body if they get something toxic though the same thing happens they don't uh, they can't dodge. The bullet, literally. The toxic properties hit them four times as hard. But the bene as do the beneficial properties of whatever they take in.
0: Yeah, well, my last question is about fasting. Uh, fasting seems to be all the rage right now. And I know a lot of people have issues with fasting. Especially when they, they're so used to eating 24-7 and suddenly all of a sudden they're like, oh, well, I'm not going to eat for this period of time. Would this, are you a proponent of fasting, first of all? And then also, is this going to help people who might want to fast? Because I know a lot of times when you're fasting, you may have those cravings for, for different foods.
1: Right. That's one of the primary reasons that I am extremely conservative about fasting. And I mean, Intermittent fasting is a possibility, but it's, again, something that we have virtually no real long-term research on. We don't know. We have been playing with fasting big time since the 1970s, and it has had such terrible rebound effects. I mean, I can't tell you the number of young women and girls with eating disorders who developed full-on bulimia or anorexia after their first ever fast. So we just don't know. And I don't believe that we have any business advocating a radical diet when we don't know the consequences for sure. I certainly get a lot of variation in response. And I'm, hey, I, we need a solution to our, to our obesity and degenerative disease problem. But I know that, that healthful food, eaten three times a day at least, supported our health and our weight for 2 million years. So I'm afraid of the consequences. And I'm very happy to see that there are some studies being done on, for example, medically monitored fasts, which are always 400 to 500 calories a day, and seeing terrible long-term Hormonal changes affecting metabolism and appetite. But I think the thing that's the most fascinating on this subject that I mentioned in the book is the, the fasting of animals in order to achieve weight gain at market time. The, the, the best research on, on fasting really has been done on steers. And as a result of it, beef producers all over the world are, are fasting their animals after the first three months, uh, they have a three-month period of, of of very limited food, and then they give them the the usual amount of food for the last three months of their lives, and and they gain almost twice as much weight as the cows that are fed the standard amount the whole time. The only difference is that they were fasting, so. We just cannot assume that we know for everyone that any new and radical diet is going to be the answer, but with the aminos to help with cravings, it's a safer proposition, but that still doesn't protect us from whatever the uh, the in the, these are ancient mechanisms we're playing with you know one of the, another thing I talk about in the in the uh, craving cure is about what we do know from societies that kept really good records in the 17 and 1800s who were you know the victims of a terrible famine and what happened to their offspring and what happened was weight gain and diabetes so we're talking long-term repercussions for anything that we do that is not a traditional food pattern that's you know so i'm i'm coming from a from a very conservative position um at wanting us to stick with the traditional foods and, and eating patterns that our forebears thrived on and this experience, extensive experience I've had with eating disorders that were clearly triggered by fat.
0: I think your book made me realize that, um, that you need to kind of deal with the cravings first and then maybe if you want to go into that, then, you know, venture into it. But I think you probably want to balance out your neurotransmitters and do all that stuff first before you ever try to to do any type of fasting. And I think in our society, especially have,
1: if you've done quite a bit before,
0: yeah, I think in our society we try to just leap to the to the the,
1: the most extreme
0: hope. Well, hopeful. the most <laughs> thing, the most extreme thing, and then the thing that we think is going to fix our problem the quickest, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. that's yes. it,
1: and, and it's understandable. Yeah, these are horrible problems. This is deformity this is a dis- deadly disease. You know, it's understandable that we're getting desperate, but I wish that that these things were 100% safe. It's really a gamble, and we've been losing in all of our gambles since the 1970s. Yeah.
0: Julia Ross, your book is called The Craving Cure. I know this interview could have probably been Three hours, but we're going <laughs> to cut, we're going to cut it short. And for those of you out there who are listening to the interview, this is a, a really, really good book. Julia does a really great job of giving you all the questionnaires and lay, and lays it out for you. You don't really have to do anything. And so I really enjoyed the book and it's available wherever you buy your books, Amazon, wherever you want to buy those books. And your site, Julia, is called the am Correct, right?
1: yeah that's the site for the for the new book but uh, all the books have their own websites the uh, moodcure.com and dietcure.com as well and actually they're all centralized on one thing that's called julia okay
0: is there anything that you wanted to say before we, we part
1: i did there is something i'd like to to uh say how much i enjoy your interviews and that you are the best prepared of uh, any interviewer that i have ever experienced.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I always read the books. So if you have a book, I'm going to read it and I'm going to add it.
1: people don't, Darren, I promise you.
0: No, no, but I always read the books and I'm just naturally inquisitive as well. So I like to know about these things and I'm learning as well as when I'm interviewing you I don't know everything I know people think when I interview people I know everything I don't know as much as people think I know but I'm always learning because I'm always having to read these books and I'm always asking (laughs) questions so I thank you for that you're welcome I hope to
1: get together with you again all right thank you you're welcome bye-bye